The Joan and Bill Hanks Center for the Catholic Intellectual Heritage at Loyola University, Chicago, is proud to support Jesuitical. Hanks Center events for spring 2024 include the annual Newman Lecture, given by political scientist Jason Blakely, who will discuss his conversion experience, a celebration of the great Catholic jazz pianist Mary Lou Williams in a series of events featuring Deanna Witkowski, and the annual Cardinal Bernadine Common Cause Lecture, featuring Cardinal Christophe Pierre, Apostolic Nuncio to the United States. For the full lineup and information about upcoming events, please visit www.luc.edu slash ccih. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast from American Media for saints and sinners. You can join us each week for honest conversations about the Catholic Church and our world today, often over drinks. I'm Ashlyn McKinless and I'm joined by Zach Davis. And I am here in body, but my spirit is still in the Midwest. I believe it. Um, <laughs> You're looking a little pale. <laughs> no, it was, there was not a lot of sun. There was a lot of snow, but more importantly, lots of great people that we yes. got to meet uh, in our trips to Madison and Chicago last yeah. week. I, we, so I want to give a huge thank you again to St. Thomas Aquinas Parish in Madison. We stayed in their rectory. It was awesome. I'd never stayed in a rectory before, and it's everything I imagined and more. A couple lazy boys. <laughs> so many lazy boys. Great like hospitality. Carpets, wood paneling. I was mostly focused on the furniture, but yeah, no, the yeah. people were also amazing. <laughs> yeah, we had a really good time talking to Bishop Donald Hying. That episode's going to be coming out later. And also want to give a huge thank you to the Hank Center at Loyola University Chicago. We had a great talk with our good friend, Father Patty Gilger, SJ, about uh, what we want to do with our lives and discernment and life after college and all that stuff, which I hope was somewhat helpful for some of the students that attended. So coming into this episode with a full heart of gratitude. Yes. And this week we are talking to Matthew Kressler. Matthew is the creator of Bad Catholics, Good Trouble. It's a, a webcomic series and I was not familiar with this genre, but it was really cool. It's about anti-racism and the struggles for justice across um, American Catholic history. Yeah. Fascinating work. Uh, really exciting to talk to Matthew about that. And it's, it's great to roll out uh, as we're starting Black History Month. Yes. And Matthew suggested one of our, our favorites, the old-fashioned. Yeah, the most <laughs> traditional of cocktails. Cheers. But first, we have Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. What's our first story, Zach? So our first story comes from Canada where uh, Cardinal Gérard de Croix of Quebec is going to be temporarily stepping aside from his duties after being named in a class action sex abuse lawsuit. Right. So this lawsuit was brought against the Archdiocese of Quebec in 2022. But recently, Cardinal Lacroix was named in uh, new court documents. In total, there are 147 victims who are bringing this civil suit against the Archdiocese. Um, and so far, the Cardinal has maintained his innocence. Yeah. So the accusation is that Cardinal Lacroix inappropriately touched a 17-year-old girl on two occasions in 1987 and 1988 when he was a religious brother. The woman has not been named and these have not been uh, scrutinized in any court setting. Right. And so just yesterday, we're talking on the 31st, Cardinal Lacroix put out a video message where he said, quote, never to my knowledge have I acted inappropriately toward anyone, whether minors or adults. My soul and my conscience are at peace in the face of these accusations, which I refute. Yeah. And this is an important story. We'll be watching for how the Archdiocese handles it, how Cardinal Lacroix handles it. But it's 
important because Lacroix is the highest ranking prelate in Canada. And he's also one of Pope Francis's council of cardinal advisors. So this is really, you know, one of Francis's inner circle advisors. Yeah. So we don't have that much more information now, but we'll be sure to keep you updated. What's our next story, Ashley? So last week was the week of prayer for Christian unity, uh, which brings together Catholics and Anglicans in our shared hope for full communion under Christ. And one of the ways that this was marked was with a, a summit, which brought it was a really interesting idea. It was it brought together pairs of like one Anglican and one Catholic from 27 different countries all over the world. Uh, first, they went to Rome, and then after a few days there, they went to Canterbury in England, which is the the heart of Anglican Christianity. Yeah, and one of the ways it was marked in Rome is that Anglican Archbishop Justin Welby of Canterbury celebrated an Anglican Eucharist in a Catholic church in Rome, the Church of St. Bartholomew, which is on the Tiber Island. I, we walked by we walked that, by right? It. it was and closed when yeah, we tried to go in, but okay. it's a great church. There's yeah. like a cannonball lodged in the side of the wall. Go check it out sometime. But this is you know, pretty notable because Archbishop Welby said he was doing that with the permission of Pope Francis, which I think is you know, both fascinating like, canonically and like interesting in terms of like what it means for uh, Christian unity. It's certainly an act of hospitality and, and a step towards uh, fraternal relations improving. Yeah. And something that has uh, not been without controversy. And in, in the recent past, um, I think it was last year that we covered a story of this. It was a group of Anglo-Catholics. So this is a they're in communion with the Anglican Church, not the Catholic Church, but they have a great affinity for Catholicism. So they were in Rome and they celebrated mass at uh, St. John Lateran uh, without going through kind of the official Holy See channels to get the permission to do that. And the, the church had to come out with a statement apologizing, saying it was a matter of miscommunication and they didn't want it to cause hurt or confusion. Yeah. But one of the things that I learned when covering that story uh, in America was that there is opportunities for that to happen, right? So like general Vatican recommendations and canon law says like worship in Catholic churches should be reserved for Catholics generally, but there are opportunities where we make exceptions to that rule. Yeah, and it's reciprocated. There are occasions where Catholics in in England will celebrate a Catholic mass in an Anglican church, and it's generally seen as like an act of hospitality for pilgrims. Um, and then we reciprocate that hospitality uh, between the two churches. So. Yeah. So this is obviously one of Francis's priorities: is you know, again, building bonds of fraternity between uh, other Christian denominations. So this is just another interesting step along that journey. Yes. And finally, we have another interesting meeting at the Vatican. The director, Martin Scorsese, met Pope Francis for at least the third time. Yeah. Uh, so this happened uh, this week, the day we're recording, Wednesday, January 31st. Uh, as you said, it's not the first time that Martin Scorsese has met with Pope Francis. We should say famously Catholic director. Uh, yes. Even his not Catholic movies have Catholic imagination embedded in them. Oh, oh, totally. Even if they are often three hours long, which and, doesn't bother me, yeah. but um, bothers some people. Very um, bloody. That bothers me a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Martin Scorsese has a new movie out this Oscar season, Killers of the Flower Moon, um, which he gifted a like a sort of photo book of that film to Pope Francis. And Scorsese is also in the news in Catholic circles because he announced he's working on a new movie about Jesus. Yeah, so I I don't I think it's supposed to be you know a, a like set in the time of Jesus. Is that right? Is it a biopic? What what are we I don't, expecting? We, we don't know a lot of details other than it's based off a Shusaku Endo novel uh, called okay. The Life of Jesus, which that, uh, Endo also wrote Silence, which was another one of Scorsese's films. So it's interesting because we also know it's going to be shorter 
I alluded to his, his the length of his movies earlier, but this one is supposed to be Yeah, only... not a lot to work with there. Yeah, his, yeah. His life. <laughs> yeah, 80 minutes. Wow. Okay, maybe I'll see this one. <laughs> yeah. Um so I can't wait for it to come out. Uh it's going to be I'm sure lots to talk about. When he uh came out with The Last Temptation of Christ, uh big controversy in Catholic circles. A lot I of people thought it was I have to admit I have not seen it. I, a lot of people thought it was blasphemous. Mm. Some people thought Willem Dafoe's Brooklyn accent for <laughs> Jesus was blasphemous. But we'll see. Uh we got a lot of great coverage in America. If you follow America's Instagram, you might have seen an Instagram reel where Kevin Christopher Robles was breaking this down. Kevin Christopher Robles, who's our on this podcast, sounded engineer. You hear his name in the credits, and he's also our studio operator in America. So he knows way more about movie history, theory, news than we do. So definitely go check out that Instagram reel if you haven't. And then we've also got America landed an interview with Scorsese. Yeah. So our colleague, Ryan DeCorpo, he was a former O'Hare fellow. Now he works um, over at Outreach. But he had an exclusive interview with Martin Scorsese, uh, wide ranging, talks about um, Killers of the Flower Moon, about his Catholic faith, um, about how he thinks about the American dream. So super fascinating and really cool for our colleague. And now stick around for our conversation with Matthew Kressler about his new webcomic, Bad Catholics, Good Trouble. Joining us from Silver Spring, Maryland, is Matthew Kressler. Matthew is the creator of Bad Catholics, Good Trouble, a webcomic series about anti-racism and the struggles for justice across American Catholic history. Welcome to Jesuitical, Matthew. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. It's so good to have you on the show and so excited to talk about this uh, cool new webcomic that you've got out. Yeah, and like all good comics uh, and heroes, I assume this has an origin story. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, it does. And I appreciate the comic book lingo. So I'm a scholar of Catholicism and race. I've written a book on Black Catholic history, articles on both Black Catholic history and the history of white Catholic racism. And when I was kind of writing my most recent work on white Catholic racism in Chicago in the 60s, I had this sense that I really wanted to tell the story in a way that not just my fellow scholars could engage and appreciate. Um, it felt, you know, as I was writing that, we were really in the midst of the kind of rising Black Lives Matter movement and kind of the kind of rising calls for justice um, within the church and the country. And so it felt urgent to tell this story in a way that, you know, for lack of a better term, just regular, ordinary Catholics, or especially like 10-year-olds, 12-year-olds. Yeah, like you mentioned schoolers. offline that you're a, <laughs> one of your kids was your first reader. So was this That's kind of right. a project for, for your own kids too? Yeah. Yeah. You could definitely say that like this was like a way for me to do my research in a way that my children would appreciate <laughs> and be able to understand. I mean, that's such an interesting idea, not to sidebar too much, but I mean, considering your vocation as a scholar and an academic, do you feel that like speaking to a wider audience is like an offshoot of that vocation? Or do you feel like that's integral to your own scholarship too? I think it's definitely central to how I view myself as a scholar and a writer. You know, I think one of the gifts that um, the work of scholarship um, and kind of intellectual discourse has is um, it pushes us to be precise, to be nuanced, to kind of paint the human picture as one that's complicated um, and not straightforward, not black and white. Um, 
But I've also like been committed to the idea that you don't have to be a scholar to engage in more nuanced and complex conversations, right? You left out boring in that description. Is that that, that is sometimes when I <laughs> yes. encounter academic work, it That's is right. precise and nuanced, but it also could be yeah. a little boring. And and That's it's right. hard to think of a, a a medium that's further from academic writing. All due respect, but you know, I edit a lot of academics than comic yes. books. You're, you you yes. don't have a lot of words to use. Yes. <laughs> Yes. If we went back to that origin story question, I mean, like one origin story is I just love comic books. Like I'm a big fan of comic books. And I just like you just said, Ashley, like one of the things I love about comic books is kind of like movies and TV. They speak to us in images, in action. Um, They are action packed by kind of their nature. Academic articles don't tend, you know, some of the best are, but but so many of them are not action packed and they certainly don't tend to be visual speak in a visual language. Um, And so that was like a big part of this project is like, can we communicate these really important and and complicated conversations about racial justice, racism, the Catholic Church's complicity in these things in a visual language, one that doesn't have lots of footnotes and interventions into scholarly discourse, but is just kind of like a combination of pictures and text in ways that anyone could understand from like, you know, my elementary school kids all the way up to elders and parish communities. Now, let's just get right into the comic itself. Who are our characters? What's the premise? What's going on? Yeah. So the story of this first webcomic, and the title is An Exception to the Rule, it centers on a real woman, Sister Angelica Schultz, who is a Franciscan sister for the Sisters of St. Francis in Dubuque, Iowa. And it is the story of how she marched um, in an open housing march in the civil rights movement in Chicago in 1966. And how as she was marching for racial justice, she and other activists um, kind of came face to face, kind of encountered, um, were confronted by mobs of white Catholic Chicagoans who were adamantly opposed to the civil rights movement, to open housing. Um, And very famously, she was a victim of violence. So someone in the crowd threw a brick, which hit her in the head and knocked her down. Um, And so going back to the like, doing scholarship, but in an action-packed way, (laughs) when I was thinking about like, okay, how do I translate this work into a medium that would be engaging and compelling? I thought of that story of the nun hit in the head by a brick. Um, Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, that is certainly action-packed. Can we take that as a way into this kind of difficult and complicated story? Dr. King had mentioned like some of the things that he faced marching in Chicago were the worst that he had seen, right? I think oftentimes we think of Dr. King marching through the South, and that's where the majority of the sort of resistance and backlash was. But this is in Chicago. But I had never really heard like it framed as this was a a, a mob of Catholics, white Catholics in Chicago. But it had always just kind of been this like anonymous mob. But you're sort of centering this idea that this was sort of like Catholics throwing a brick at this Catholic nun who's marching alongside Dr. King. Yes, absolutely. I think that we, uh, and by we, I guess I mean Americans generally, have done ourselves a disservice by thinking about religion and politics as kind of two separate things. Um, When we think about the civil rights movement, we tend to think of it as a quote unquote secular event in secular American history. But of course, the activists who were fighting for racial justice, um, like Rosa Parks, like Dr. King, like Septima Clark, Fannie Lou Hamer, these were people who were profoundly religious and were driven to fight for justice by their religious traditions, among other things. 
And so we don't, we often will forget that and not talk about kind of civil rights activists as religious actors. It's even worse when we talk about the people resisting the civil rights movement, the opposition to the civil rights movement. Um, we are kind of conditioned to think about racism as about race and having nothing to do with religion. But in fact, you know, kind of as like a photo negative of um, the Dr. Kings and Fannie Lou Hamers of the world, folks who resisted the civil rights movement, folks who were in support of segregation, often did that from a deeply rooted religious perspective. And in the case of Chicago, most of those people that King and Sister Angelica Schultz and others faced in resistance were Catholic. And, you know, in some of my academic writing, I've kind of talked about how these letters that white Catholics would write um, to their archbishop, kind of outraged and, and angry about the civil rights movement, always wove together opposition to the civil rights movement and their devotion as Catholics, right? I am a real good and sincere Catholic, and that is why I'm opposed to what Dr. King is doing. You know, I have been going to mass every day my whole life and I don't think that my children should have to go to school with black children, right? And so, yeah, we don't tend to think about these things in this way. We don't tend to talk about resistance to the civil rights movement as a central event in Catholic history. You know, speaking personally and as a scholar of the subject, I think that that's where we do ourselves a disservice. When we think about incidents like this as not really having much to tell us about what it means to be Catholic, um, I, you know, I think it's actually central to the story. One of the most striking lines in the comic is one of the people resisting uh, Dr. King and the marchers calls the sister a bad Catholic. And you and you use that term bad Catholic in, in the name of the project. So so what do you mean by bad Catholic? Is is the sister the bad one or <laughs> are the ones resisting her? Uh, the answer, of course, is yes, that's right. <laughs> that moment in the story um, was really important and I think gives a sense of, of what we mean by the title bad Catholics good trouble. I, as the creator of the project, you know, me and my co-authors, who are actually the niece and grandniece of Sister Angelica, we thought it was really important that we not have readers read this story and start kind of divvying up Catholics into good and bad. Um, even though that's like, of course, our urge, you know, that's, we can't resist but doing that. But Part of what I wanted the story and the project to challenge readers to think about um, is not who are the bad Catholics and who are the good Catholics, but what does it mean to be a good or bad Catholic in the first place? Um, because people like Sister Angelica, who are marching for racial justice, were marching precisely because they thought that that was what the gospel called them to do, right? The people who were resisting, who were yelling at, who were throwing bricks at the Sister Angelicas of the world, also thought that they were kind of in line with the gospel. Um, can you, know, can they you explain that? that? Because I can, I can think about where Sister Angelica, is, what text she's drawing on when she's like, yeah, this is what the gospel calls me to do. What are the resistors, like, what are they pointing to and saying, oh, this about the Catholic faith tells me that we can't desegregate. Yeah. So sometimes they would be kind of looking to um, kind of racist readings of the Bible to actually defend kind of systems of segregation, which was, com you know, which was not just a Catholic thing and, you know, has roots in both Protestant and Catholic 
segregationist spaces. So that was happening. And, and I have read letters where people are like, you know, saying that God created us like this and God created us to be separate. Um, it was like a divinely the, ordered way of yes, making these. That's orders. right. Yeah. That like God created an order and you're kind of like messing with that order by integrating. I think the more common move though was not kind of biblically or theologically rooted so much as it was an insistence that Sister Angelica was doing something political, whereas what it meant to be a good Catholic was to be spiritual, right? So they they would say like, the problem is that you're mixing politics and religion. Um, keep the politics out of religion, right? You know, so they would often say like, nuns should be in convents praying. Priests should be in churches saying mass. I mean, it's kind of connected to that point, Zach, about order. It's like a, it was viewed as a kind of like messing with the right order of religious life. And, you know, they would accuse folks like the Archbishop of Chicago at the time of, of messing where they shouldn't be messing, sticking, you know, literally to quote some of the letters, like sticking their nose in to places where it shouldn't be. Now, you mentioned not wanting to create maybe like this dichotomy between good and bad Catholics, but I don't want to throw stones, but I'm just willing to say that the person throwing stones was the bad Catholic. Um, can we just can we just say that like out of the like there are maybe like good guys and bad guys in this story? Sure. Yeah. Sure. I mean, I, I you know, I say it a little tongue in cheek. Like I, yeah. I know, and I, you know, in the reading guides on the website, I actually say like, if your instinct is to say like these people are bad, these people are good, like that's okay. Like that's kind of what the story calls you to do. What I really want to do is challenge readers to not rush away from the bad Catholics, quote unquote, in a way to say like, well, I'm good and I don't need to worry about that. I want readers to really confront the fact that this is part of their history if they're an American Catholic, right? Um, that the people that they're reading about here on both sides of this confrontation are part of the history that we inherit today as American Catholics. You know, later in the um, in the comic, you know, we get to look at an actual letter that was written by a kind of white Catholic who was outraged at this and who justified the throwing. You know, they, they didn't throw the brick themselves, but they were basically like, you know, if I'd been in that situation, I would have done the same thing. And the follow up to that in the conversation between Sister Angelica and her grandniece is to actually name that, you know, most people didn't throw bricks. <laughs> most people didn't march for justice either. Most people, especially if we're talking about white Catholics, most white Catholics simply kind of stayed quiet and like didn't do much of anything and were silent in the face of all that was going on. And so they, I think most readers are probably going to say like, well, whatever I should do, I shouldn't be throwing bricks at people. But I'm hoping that those same readers were also be a little bit uncomfortable with the idea that like this is part of Catholic history too. And then kind of be challenged to think a little bit about like, well, if this is part of my history, then what does that call me to do? Or what, how does that kind of call me to think differently about that history? Find your purpose at the Jesuit School of Theology of Santa Clara University. As a student, you'll have the opportunity to faithfully and critically engage the 2,000-year tradition of Christianity through approaches grounded in the 21st century and the Church's global context. Rooted in an Ignatian heritage, scholars and ministers are equipped to live out their theology for the benefit of the communities they serve. 
generous scholarship opportunities are available and priority applications are being accepted now. To learn more, visit scu.edu forward slash JST forward slash hello. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. You used the term white Catholic, and I know for much of my life, I would not have described myself as a white Catholic. I would be like, you know, I'm just a Catholic. So why why do you think it's important for us to to sit with that uncomfortable idea of us being a, a certain type of Catholic defined by this really uh, painful history? Yeah. When I kind of insist that we think about white Catholics or talk about something called white Catholicism, um, I'm actually using that term in a slightly different way than we might use the term like black Catholicism or Latino Catholicism, right? If we're talking about, you know, I'm speaking here partly as a historian of black Catholics, right? If we're talking about black Catholicism, the black in black Catholicism is kind of hearkening to a kind of long tradition of African descended peoples who have incorporated parts of their particular cultures into what it means to be Catholic. I was raised Italian, you know, my family, my people are Italian American, um, the kind of, you know, the descendant of Italian immigrants. So I think of like my cultural identity, not as a kind of generic white Catholic identity, but as something rooted in kind of Italian immigrant Catholicism. When we talk about white Catholics, when we name white Catholicism, why it's important to do that is that it points our attention to the ways that particular groups of Catholics have bought into the power relationship that is whiteness. You know, so it's not that anyone with a particular skin tone in all times and places should be identified as a white Catholic. You know, what it means to be a white Catholic in the United States in 1868 versus 1928 versus today it doesn't look the same, right? It changes through history. But what I think is important to name is that Groups of Catholics descended from European immigrants in the United States bought into the myth, the belief of whiteness, the myth or belief that by virtue of being white, um, they are superior. And not, you know, to, to kind of like echo what you said, Ashley, not only that they are superior, but that like this is the only way to be Catholic, right? Because that was how I was raised. You know, that was how I thought of my Catholicism too. Like growing up, you know, my love of a particular kind of liturgy and my kind of like hearkening back to particular saints, I didn't think of that as culturally specific. I just thought of that as like what it meant to be Catholic. So by saying white Catholic or naming white Catholicism, part of what we're doing is naming that like, this has a history. It hasn't always been like this. You know, this is in fact, one way of being Catholic in a kind of world of lots of different ways of being Catholic. I feel like I was really challenged by both the comic and some of your scholarly work on this because as a Catholic or a white Catholic, I look towards some things in the civil rights movement and I'm 
really proud, right? I'm proud of the ways that Catholics, you know, marched alongside Dr. King and sort of stood up for racial justice. But what your work calls out is that those were more often than not exceptions. And I'm wondering if you think this is like a unique unique to this moment in history or if there's something to like Catholic memory in history that tries to only look at sort of our, our saints and our hagiography at the expense of maybe, uh, I don't know, smoothing over some of our uglier parts. I'll pull back a little bit from making a statement about all of Catholics. and But I, I do think it's maybe a distinctively American Catholic phenomenon. You know, if we think about like the history of Catholics and Catholicism in this place that came to be the United States. The story that was told for a long time, particularly by European American Catholics, was a story that started in persecution and ended in triumph, right? So it began with like a, a Catholic immigrants being persecuted against, which was a fact, right? Like which actually did happen and kind of uh, would conveniently you know, culminate in John F. Kennedy's election in 1960, by which point, kind of, again, like sociologically, economically, Catholics had, um, or at least the majority of them had kind of attained kind of Americanness. That is a triumphant story. That is a like hagiographical hey, story. I think all Catholics in the United States, in a sense, have been reckoning with over the last, let's say, decade or so, um, is a kind of awakening to the fact that that was one particular story that fit kind of an ideal type of one particular people, but that conveniently ignored a lot of that history, right? So it certainly ignored Catholic enslavement of African peoples, um, certainly ignored um, kind of Catholic um, anti-Black racism, kind of that is kind of a through line through most of Catholic history, as well as intra-Catholic violence between kind of European Catholics and kind of Latin American Catholics. So yeah, I think, you know, is that a Catholic thing generally? I'm not sure. Is that an American Catholic thing? I think for sure. And this is something that's not just happening among scholars. I think it's really like starting among like ordinary Catholic communities in parishes, in religious orders, like the Jesuits, right? You know, really facing our history in a sense for the first time or the fullness of our history um, for the first time and offering an important kind of corrective to, you know, as you said, rightly, like a hagiographical account of, of American Catholic history. You mentioned the Jesuits confronting their history. And of course, part of that was the Jesuits in Maryland owning and selling slaves to keep Georgetown running. And that's like a very obvious, clear example of, you know, the institutional church buying into you know, the idea of whiteness and whiteness or white superiority. Um, I'm curious, in the time period we're looking at in this in this comic in the 1960s, what was the role of the you know, institutional church? It just won't surprise you if you know anything about like the post-Vatican II history. It was a mess. It was all over the place. <laughs> uh, so you had... Um, I think that's you know, also true. Uh, right. Just, yeah. Yeah. I, <laughs> I can't right. point to a period where it's not a mess, but... Point, point taken. taken. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. No, absolutely. Absolutely. If we're talking about in the middle of the 20th century, you had bishops in the South who kind of openly endorsed segregation. And um, before that, you had bishops who openly endorsed slavery. And actually, Zach, I think you said the key word earlier, like order is the big word. You know, I think that um, for a long time and even up to today, 
a kind of Catholic valuing of order and obedience to order has been central to Catholic history and is the same in the 1960s. Where it got messy is that you would have, like in Chicago, kind of bishops doing one thing, the priests under the bishops doing other things, and the parishioners kind of in relationship to both of those doing something you know, else entirely. So in Chicago, uh, Cardinal Cody, who was the archbishop at the time, couldn't win for losing. He was considered a racial liberal and endorsed um, Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement as um, a, a kind of like great social revolution that the church needed to be on the side of. So he caught it from all of the white Catholics who kind of were opposed to the civil rights movement. He was also quite a dictatorial and authoritarian bishop who condemned his activist priests and really resisted the rise of more black power oriented priests and, and lay people. Um, so he also <laughs> got it from that side as well. But yeah, in Chicago, like you had churches, you know, parishes led by priests that were avowedly segregationist that would um, kind of, uh, you know, priests, pastors of parishes that worked to kind of redraw parish lines as neighborhoods changed, who saw themselves as kind of not figuratively, but literally on the front lines of a war against a kind of changing country and changing city. It's, it's not easy to say kind of, you know, that there is this kind of like overarching or to totalizing thing. But when we're talking about Black Catholic history, in 1968, Black Catholic priests and sisters would organize and they would declare forcefully that the Catholic Church in the United States was a white racist institution. So when they named that, they weren't trying to say that like, oh, there's this bad priest here or this bad bishop there. They were trying to name something kind of structurally about the institution in the United States writ large. And so, yeah, <laughs> it was messy. Um, and certainly like it was something that was not just a kind of individual case of like bad actors, um, but kind of institutional power uh, behind those bad actors in, in many cases as well. I, I want to go back to this question of sort of using the title of being a good Catholic or a real good Catholic, um, you know, as a, as a way to sort of justify your position. It's like, I'm actually one of the people you should be listening to because I'm a real good Catholic. I think you see that today um, all over the place. And sometimes people use sort of uh, authentic. I'm an authentic Catholic. I'm a I'm an Orthodox Catholic. I'm a Vatican II Catholic. Th all these little shorthands that people will use to sort of claim that they're the real source of Catholicism. What do you make of that? Is that is there a reason we see that today also? I mean, maybe the first thing I'd say is just like honor and affirm that like all people everywhere do that. <laughs> like it's a, yeah, it's yeah. like a natural, like human instinct to be like, um, no, but, but like, I'm good, right? Like we all see ourselves as the good guys in the story. I'm a real Cleveland Cavaliers fan. You're just- That's right, <laughs> that's yeah. right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's a natural instinct, I would say. But why I think it's important to call attention to that move is that when we're making that move, what we're doing is we are um, not simply kind of neutrally declaring like I'm good. We're actually making an argument about what it means to be good. You will rarely see a declaration like that. I'm a good Catholic or I'm an authentic Catholic or I'm an Orthodox Catholic. 
without the kind of implicit, usually silent <laughs> statement, you know, unlike those other Catholics who are doing it wrong or doing it badly, right? So in the um, civil rights era, that insistence, like I'm a real good Catholic, was usually said in contrast to, you know, in contrast to these law-breaking rabble-rousers who are out in the streets, or even in contrast to these people who are messing with my mass, right? <laughs> you know, including gospel music or, or kind of drumming or, you know, folk music, right? So it's usually a way of kind of, you know, as identity work usually is, it's a way of saying, I am this and I am good. And they are not, they're doing it wrong. And so one of the things as a scholar of Catholicism and race that I'm always attended to is when those seemingly neutral words seem to have certain undertones beneath it, right? You know, when I hear, um, you know, I'm a traditional Catholic or I'm an Orthodox Catholic, what I hear is a critique of other ways of being Catholic. Um, and you, you know, this is, you know, a few years back now, but when we think of the Amazonian Synod, um, you know, where kind of indigenous practices that, you know, were part and parcel of Catholic liturgical life were taking place in Rome, um, the insistence that like, no, I'm an authentic Orthodox Catholic, this is wrong, had kind of racial and colonial undertones, even if it wasn't being said. Sometimes there were overtones, I think. <laughs> right. There were plenty of overtones yeah, and yeah. to go with the undertones. It's but it's kind of in so-called polite spaces. It's like almost like a kind of colorblind way of talking about Catholicism hmm. to say like, well, I'm authentic or I'm traditional. Like I didn't say anything about being European. I just said I was authentic or, or, or orthodox. Paying attention to kind of what's going on between the lines or underneath the surface is really important, especially if we like want to insist that the Catholic Church is small c Catholic, right? Like universal and global and like that there is no one way, um, you know, that all must kind of embody their Catholicism in its fullness. So going back to the comic, it it ends kind of open-ended, but also with a call to action. At least this first chapter, it ends with uh, Sister Angelica telling her grandniece to go and be the exception to the rule. So I, I'm just curious, what are you hoping people take away from this project, what it inspires, especially in younger people who, who might read it? I left that open-ended. You know, we, again, my co-authors as well, like we wanted it to be a call, an invitation into work rather than a kind of like, didactic, like this is how to do it, or this is how to be good. So I, you know, of course, like, I'm not like hoping people don't leave empty handed, like, you know, we have other resources on the website. So we're pointing to people like Dan Haran and Olga Segura and Brian Massengale and Sean Copeland and, you know, different scholars and thinkers and activists who give Catholic Catholics resources for racial justice work. So it's not like, okay, now just go off. James Baldwin, when he was writing a letter to his nephew, you know, said like, don't, don't trust anyone, only trust yourself. Don't even trust me, nephew, <laughs> like trust yourself and what you experience. And, you know, that's kind of a kind of like in the background, a kind of inspiration for this, where it's like, don't take my word for it, you know, trust your own sense of who you are. And hopefully the comic will help readers see the world as it actually is. Um, and then lead them to draw certain conclusions, having seen the world as it actually is. So it begins with this kind of like romantic vision of what the civil rights movement is. 
by the end of the story, you have a much less romantic, much more kind of concrete sense of what it looked like. And so kind of hopefully the comic helps people take some of those blinders off um, and then seeing themselves and the world more clearly kind of calls them to take action. Yeah, you do have a really nice like study guide and prayer guide that I appreciated to go along with the comic. Matthew, thank you so much for coming on the show and chatting with us and sort of making our history a little less hagiographical and a little more concrete. But before we let you go, we have one final question for you that we ask all our guests, and that is, if you could canonize one person, living or dead, Catholic or not, fictional or real, who would it be and why? Oh, man. I just named him. I invoked him. But it's hard not to name James Baldwin, um, which will seem a really weird choice for a variety of reasons, not least because he, when he was Christian, he wasn't Catholic. You know, in the majority of his life, he he wasn't Christian so much, um, though he did say that, like, I left the church, but never the church never left me. Baldwin, because he was so deeply, you know, encultured to what it meant to be Christian before leaving it, I think Baldwin is one of the most important and necessary critics of the Christian world and Christianity. And by critic here, I mean like someone who like calls Christianity to what it is meant to be, right? He has a lot of lines where he'll say things like, if if like we can't get back to what this sun-baked Hebrew named Jesus was doing in Nazareth, then we might as well just get rid of this whole project, right? And so uh, he would certainly be, um, I think, a controversial pick for a number of people and for a number of reasons, but he, for me, his kind of deep humanism and commitment to kind of, you know, he wouldn't use this language, but to an incarnational Christianity, right? One that emphasizes like the flesh and blood and bone of us as humans and of what God became. That's, you know, he calls me to that. Um, and and that would be, that'd be my pick. Is there a favorite uh, book or piece of writing you would point people to to start with? I'll give a deep cut and and a classic. I mean, the classic, The Fire Next Time, it's very short. You can read it in an afternoon. While it is kind of relatively early Baldwin, it was in 63, it still hits today stronger than it ever has before. Um, and my students, it's one of the rare things that when I was teaching, I would give it to my students. And not only would they read it, but they would say, I gave it to my boyfriend or I gave it to my mom. <laughs> so the fire next time. But he also, the deep cut is he has, um, so in 1968, Martin Luther King was slated to address the World Council of Churches. And then he was assassinated. And so they invited James Baldwin to speak in his stead. And the address that he gave, I think its title is White Racism or World Community, is him directly addressing a gathering of Christian ministers. And it's kind of his treatise on what kind of Christianity has wrought in the world, the kind of violence it has wrought in the world, but what it has to be if it's going to be anything at all. So yeah, The Fire Next Time, you can find in any bookstore anywhere or library. Um, white racism or world community, you'd have to look at um, a collected essay edition, but it's it's worth your time. It's worth your time. Well, it's not a controversial pick on this podcast. We, we did have a producer check. Uh, Sebastian says it's the fourth time James Baldwin has been canonized here. There we so go. you're in good company. There we go. Uh, so <laughs> it's going to be Vox Populi. We're going to we're going to we're going to bring it. Yeah, bring it totally. Whether he wants it or not, I suppose. <laughs> That's, oh, yeah, he certainly wouldn't. He certainly wouldn't. But, you know, I think he, he'll forgive us. Awesome. Uh, well, you can 
find the comic at badcatholics-comics.org. Matthew, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much, both of you. It's been a joy. All right, now it's time for Parish Announcements, the part of the show where we ask you to please be seated before the final blessing. Uh, real quick, want to thank our new Patreon supporters that signed up since last time we read these names. So huge thank you to Robert Jones, Lauren, and Russell Sveta. Thank you so much for, for supporting the show. Um, also want to give a shout out to Patreon supporter Amanda Breskovich, who is from the Madison area and so came out to see us uh, when we were interviewing Bishop Donald Hying there, which was super fun to meet you in person. Yes. And we mentioned this at the top. We are so grateful for the hospitality we received in Madison, especially from Jennifer Ludke and Caroline Rowe. And uh, want to give another thank you to the people at the Hank Center at Loyola University Chicago, specifically Mike Murphy, Katie Arnold, Patty Gilger. Thank you all so much for the work you did to organize that. Uh, it was a ton of fun for me to be be back at Alma Mater. We got to, we had a chance to go to the Thursday night mass that I used to go to as a college student, which was, was really special in addition to being able to talk uh, with Patty and to all the students there. And our next roadshow is down in Washington, D.C. on Wednesday, February 28th. We'll be interviewing Cardinal Wilton Gregory. We're very excited about that. And this is a collaboration with the Initiative on Catholic Social Thought and Public Life. We are having a lot of fun uh, actually getting out on the road, meeting some of you. So if this is something that you would like in your own community, please reach out to us. Um, a number of you have. We're we're trying to our best. We, we unfortunately can't do this Full time. Well, you never know. But we're trying to, you know, plan a few things uh, a quarter. That's the adult way of measuring right. time, right? A few things a quarter. So um, please reach out. We'll, we'll get back to you if it's something we can make work. Uh, you can email us at jesuitical at americamediate.org. And now we have, as one friend speaks to another, the part of our show where we talk about where we're finding God in our lives this week. What do you have, Zach? So broadly want to talk about in prayer how you know that someone's on the other end of the line. Um, I had this experience in prayer last week where my mind was going a million miles an hour and a bunch of things were just pinging back and forth, which I don't necessarily think is a bad thing for prayer, but I heard this I heard this voice or it wasn't directly. I had the sense that, you know, you're not, you don't have to just talk to yourself about this. Um, and I was like, oh, right. Prayer is supposed to be a dialogue. And it's such a basic thing, but I think one of the things I've struggled with uh, in you know, developing a prayer practice is, I feel like the act of stopping to pray is already like, I've already done the the work I need to do to invite God to, to say something to me, right? But oftentimes like what'll happen is I will stop to pray and then I'll, I'll just be thinking as if I had been, you know, thinking about anything else that I was doing throughout my day. Yeah. I have the same experience where it, I don't, I don't think I'm talking to myself, but it feels like I'm talking at God, which I think God is happy to be talked at yeah. <laughs> better than nothing. But yeah, the the listening part can be can be harder and knowing, yeah, who you're listening to, I guess, or just making space for that. Most of what goes into that is just pausing for silence, right? And trying to like empty, like say the things you need to say and then just wait. Mm. Right. Different things work for different people. But because I don't think that like distractions in prayer are necessarily a bad thing. Oftentimes the distractions are the things that you should probably be praying about, insignificant as they may seem to you. I don't know. I think sometimes I forget that I'm saying that to another person. Yeah. I think one thing that works for me is 
um, like praying, praying the tried and true prayers, like like the Hail Mary and Our Father. And, you know, sometimes they get the rap, bad rap of being like rote prayers, like uh, you're just like mindlessly saying these words. But in my mind, the way it works for me is like I come to it with an intention or a, something I'm wrestling with. And then the act of saying the same words over and over again actually kind of like tempers the racing thoughts and puts me in a disposition where like I know that these prayers have been handed down for millennia and you know in terms of the our father it's how Jesus told us to pray so it really it slows my mind down and I think makes me in a better place to listen that's not to say I don't also get distracted when I'm saying these prayers but just in my own head it like it gives me the best chance of being in an open disposition if I'm like using this these words that I've been, you know, throughout my life have been told to me like this is this is how we talk to God. <laughs> well you, you said the word that mindlessly, right? People critique yeah. it as um saying mindless rope prayer. But there's something to emptying your mind, mm-hmm. right? And I think if you, there is sort of a mindlessness about it, um, especially if you name something from the outset, like I'm praying for this person or for this thing or about this thing, it does get you into this rhythm and creates a space, I think, where you know maybe you're better able to listen mm-hmm. when God speaks. So it's just, it's basic stuff yeah. that- The basics are the hardest. The hardest, yeah. the hardest. So uh, listeners, do you feel like you're talking to yourself when you're praying? <laughs> It feels like we're talking to ourselves when we're recording this podcast sometimes. So it is good to know that uh, there are some of you out there listening. I'm listening. <laughs> thank you, Ashley. Uh, and, you know, tell us how you feel about does, uh, to struggle. Do you struggle or not to believe or trust that God's on the other end of the line? Uh, let us know. All right. I'll get us out of here. Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes with production assistance from Michael O'Brien, Delaney Coyne, and Kevin Christopher Robles, who is also our sound engineer. Faith Formation, provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on X and Instagram at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcasts, and if you're on Apple or Spotify, leave us a review. Jesuitical is recorded in the William J. Lowshirt Studio at American Media in New York City. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week. Bye.